You guys quieted down quick. That was great. Uh, you guys can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Before I get there, though, uh, we've already had some jokes uh, going on this morning, uh, some awesome jokes. And so I have a joke this morning as well, actually a joke that Caleb Moose told me a little while ago. So uh, I'm the messenger here, okay? Uh, so what is the difference between the swine flu and the bird flu? For one, you need an ointment, and the other, you need a tweetment. <laughs> so actually, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the sisters were having a silent meal for their midweek, and me and Caleb and Jake were uh, helping to set up the meal before that, and uh, we were trying to be very quiet as the women were communing with the divine, I'm sure. And that's precisely the moment that Caleb chose to, to lean in and tell me a joke. Uh, and so uh, I don't think we interrupted the sisters, but uh, it was a good, timely joke. So anyways, Romans chapter 2, uh, we're going to dive right in. We had an awesome men's retreat this last weekend, and so I know a lot of the brothers are back uh, from Lake Wissota, and it was just an incredible time. Uh, so grateful for all the, the people that put in so much work to do lessons and meals and just to make it happen. It was an incredible time. Uh, I also just wanted to mention, uh, we have Corey and Katie Reynolds here. So they're in the back. You guys can wave. Uh, so they just moved here from Madison. And so they're going to be a part of the church here. And uh, let's make sure we wrap our arms around them. It's so good to have you guys here and I'm sure we'll get to know you guys a lot better. I think you already know quite a few people in the church, so um, amen. Well, we got work to do. We'll get to know you and, and love up on you. Uh, Romans chapter 2. Uh, the title of my message uh, maybe kind of gets at what we're going to talk about, loopholes and excuses. And uh, Romans chapter 2, uh, I, I had a, a thought of what this chapter reminded me of. Uh, parents with two young kids on any given day... Uh, probably haven't experienced something like this, where uh, as the day goes on, one child is sort of acting up throughout the day. Uh, there's sort of the rebellious child, at least for that day. Uh, and as that goes on throughout the day, uh, Joel's putting his arm around his son at that exact moment. Amen. Uh, as the day goes on, you know how uh, it just sort of can affect the whole family. Uh, and so as the day goes on, one child's kind of acting up, you kind of discipline as you go along, and it just doesn't seem to, to take root in their heart. And then at some point in time, uh, you have the other child who's more the know-it-all tattletale. And so uh, as you're having this discussion as a parent with your child, and you're, you're bringing a little bit of corrective discipline to the rebellious one, the know-it-all tattletale kind of chimes in at just the wrong moment. <laughs> Uh, at which point, as a parent, you look over to that child and say, uh, be quiet, <laughs> because you're no different. There's um, some things going on in your own heart uh, that's uh, basically, I don't need your help parenting is what you want to communicate, right? Uh, this common scenario, I think, reminds me of what is happening in Romans chapter 2. Uh, after Paul uh, has introduced his letter to the Romans and uh, in Romans chapter 1, Eli, uh, I'm sure, talked last Sunday about this sort of degenerating spiral of shameful immorality, uh, describing so much of what characterizes the Gentile world. Uh, and so Romans 1, Paul addresses that. And we can imagine the other segments of the world 
uh, that are not the Gentile population that Paul was describing there, uh, kind of sitting there brimming with superiority and pride uh, and maybe chiming in at just the wrong time. Yeah, get them, Paul. And, uh, you know, we can imagine the Jews and the other maybe so-called good people of the world uh, tuning in or chiming in just at the wrong moment in time. After all, uh, the Jews and sort of the, the good people of the world, they're not so corrupted or vulnerable to the wrath of God, right? Uh, they had certain privileges as Jews. They were kind of a cut above the rest, at least so they thought. But Paul is now going to turn his attention to silence the mouths of these people in their weak attempts at self-righteousness and self-justification. And, and we're going to kind of jump to, to Romans chapter 3 just for a moment, so I don't want to steal next Sunday's thunder. But uh, in Romans 3 verse 19, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. In other words, Paul has been kind of talking throughout this first section in the book of Romans and, and talking about how the, the Gentile world was spiraling in this shameful immorality. And then in Romans 2, he's going to talk about the Jews and the, sort of the good people of the world. And finally, by the time you get to chapter 3, Paul just goes, now we know. It's time to shut the mouths of self-justification. It's time to be quiet, zip the lip. There's none of that going on, and it sort of paves the way for the gospel that Paul is going to describe. In verse 20, he goes on and says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And so Paul silences the mouth. In other words, Paul is going to, throughout Romans chapter 2, just methodically shut up the little voices in their head that were excusing themselves from the wrath of God that Paul began to talk about in Romans 1. And the scary thing about this is that these excuse-making voices find a really good audience in our own minds and hearts. We tend to, to rationalize our sin, to defend our sin, to make allowances for our bad behavior that we would never make for other people to shift blame and to minimize our sin while self-righteously judging others. Now, as kind of an aside here, uh, we're going to talk as we look in Romans chapter 2 about self-righteous judgment. And uh, we should practice things like discernment, right? Uh, we should be able as Christians to be able to discern, discern good from evil and truth from error, uh, we should even have things like discipline. We do that in our families and even in our church from time to time. But those things aren't inherently self-righteous judgment. They may be a Trojan horse for self-righteous judgment because we can air our opinions and we could say all sorts of things uh, that are biblical, but we could do it with a heart uh, that is much more like the self-righteous Jews that we're going to read about in a moment. But we have to be very careful about the excuses that we tell ourselves. These excuse-making voices are bent on self, or sorry, sidestepping our need for a savior. Thinking that if we just crafted a solid argument before God, then God would know. God would know that he had the wrong idea about me, right? Uh, if we could just craft the right sort of uh, closing argument before 
before God, he would finally realize that we are all right all along. That's basically what our self-justification says to God. It basically says, I don't need a savior. God just had the wrong idea. And the problem, in addition to that being a lie, is that as long as we try to be our own savior, Jesus never can be. And so this section that we're going to look at in Romans chapter 2 is really important to understand the heart of the gospel. Paul is going to shut the mouths of self-justification. It's like he's turning over to the know-it-alls who pass judgment and just saying, you're no different, so be quiet. Now, it may have been a little easier to silence the mouths of uh, the shamelessly immoral. Their sin, after all, was much more obvious and overt. But now Paul has the much more difficult task to silence the excuses of the self-consciously moral and the self-confident Jews. And so that's what we're going to look at here in Romans 2. Let's look in chapter 2 and verse 1. You guys with me? All right, Romans 2, verse 1. We're going to basically read through this whole chapter because I do want you to get a sense for the argument that Paul is making. And he says in verse 1, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at, at whatever point you judge another... You are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And so the first half of Romans 2, Paul's basically talking about the, uh, the self-consciously moral. In other words, they're the, the kind of do-gooders of society. Uh, they're the people who, who do the right things and in the process often pass judgment on others. 
Now, in Romans chapter 2, the self-consciously moral person that Paul speaks of may actually be a Jew or a Gentile. Sometimes people assume that all of Romans 2 is about the Jews, uh, but it's really not until verse 17 that Paul specifically hones in on the Jews when he says in verse 17, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, and if you rely on the law, boast in God, and he goes on from there. And so it's really not until verse 17 that he hones in on the Jewish people, but I think this is really important for us to grasp. This is important because not all Gentiles in the ancient world were these shamelessly immoral people. In fact, we could find examples where uh, people had a lot of virtue that they pursued. And it's also important because it's not all non-Christians who live shame, shamelessly immoral lives today. You and I, we know plenty of people, plenty of people who work really hard to implement many noble virtues and habits into their life and their family. And when well-meaning Christians just blanket the whole non-Christian world as terribly bad, I think what happens is our message is easily misunderstood and quickly dismissed. They don't even listen. The fact, I'm being very careful with how I'm describing this, but the fact that there are non-Christians that do good is not incredibly surprising. All humans bear the image of God. We would expect that people have good that they'll do in their life because they bear the image of God. So the issue is not so much that they have good. That's beside the point. The issue that Paul's getting at is that no amount of good deeds can overshadow the sin that all of us have. I hope all of us do all the good that we possibly can in our life. But that doesn't atone for our sin or deliver us from the power of sin within us. And I think these self-consciously moral people that Paul speaks of could be any number of people in our world today. Uh, maybe uh, as I think about this, uh, it's so common to, to just absorb all the podcasts and TED Talks and, and just sort of accumulate all the kind of quote-unquote wisdom in the world so that we can be the best version of ourselves and live our best lives and, and kind of accumulate all the life hacks and relationship tips and all of those things. And in the process, sometimes we posture ourselves to be an authority on morality and virtue because we know best. That can be fine and well, but if we're thinking that that's what's going to save us, we have the wrong picture. And so we have to be very careful with how we think about doing good. Of course we should do good, but we have to be careful that that is not what we're depending on in our salvation. Look on in Romans chapter 2 and verse 17, Paul shifts over to the Jews, and he now kind of hones in specifically, and in verse 17 he says, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as those as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So now Paul kind of hones in on shutting the mouths of these self-confident Jews who boasted in having the law. That doesn't mean kind of civil law like we think of it. It's the Old Testament law. They boasted in having the law and circumcision, which may seem kind of strange thing to boast about to many modern ears today, uh, but it was basically religious status symbols. They were sort of on the in with God. And they sort of depended on that as their confidence before God. And this is what the Jews historically did. And many Christians and churches have more often followed in the footsteps of the Jews than in the footsteps of Jesus. And I think we have to be very careful in our own hearts that that doesn't happen with us. You know, often we can be blinded by our own pride and prejudices. And often churchgoers like us are primed to become these self-righteous, judgmental people. You know, I think about in my own life, uh, at first I was having a little bit of a difficulty thinking about uh, the ways that I might be self-righteously judgmental. Uh, And then I realized, well, that's probably because I've been spending all week studying out self-righteous judgment. So I'm probably tuned in this week. Uh, But I was kind of stepping back and thinking about the picture of my life and thinking about my own family. And I think as I've thought about it, I think self-righteous judgment runs pretty deep within my family, particularly my mom's side of the family. Uh, I'll get to me in a moment. Uh, But... I want to kind of frame the larger picture because I think self-righteous judgment can be really dangerous in a church family. So when I think about my grandpa on my mom's side of the family, he was in many ways really admirable. Uh, I mean, I I had a lot of respect and admiration for my grandpa. Uh, He served in the military. Uh, He was a, a finished carpenter. Finnish carpenter, he was a really impressive craftsman, just great attention to detail in everything that he did. Uh, He had extremely high standards, uh, was extremely disciplined. Uh, In fact, if you were to go to, you know, he's passed away now, but if you were to go uh, and look in his garage or his basement, it was spotless. Just think about what your garage or your basement looks like. I know what mine looks like. But you could literally, I think I could go to my grandparents' basement, and I think I could drop a plate of lasagna on the floor, and I'd be like, I could eat that still. 
because it was just clean. Every tool had its place. Every tool was well-maintained. Every vehicle was well-maintained. There was just extremely high standards that he had. Uh, there was always a proper way to do everything. I don't know if I shared this a while back, but uh, I remember one time uh, him coming to my house, grabbing my sock drawer and flipping it over because that wasn't how a sock drawer is supposed to look. I don't know if I ever learned how a sock drawer is supposed to look, but I know it was worse after he dumped out the sock drawer. Uh, and so I don't even have a sock drawer. I just have a bin in my closet now. But, uh, you know, there was one time at Easter, we, you know, the whole family was gathered around a table. Uh, and I think it was me or my brother, but we were cracking a hard-boiled egg. And even that became a problem because that was not how to crack a hard-boiled egg. There's a way to do that. And I'll show you the way, but I refuse to do it that way, just on principle. Um, and so there's a way to crack a hard-boiled egg even, and so that became kind of the issue. Now, those things are kind of silly, but it kind of gives a picture of what sometimes was the atmosphere. And I think there was a lot of things that were really admirable about that, but I think there was also a real dark side to it. And as I think about my family from my point of view, these sort of unattainable standards created an atmosphere that led to all sorts of bad fruit. Uh, my grandpa was alienated from his own sister for probably 15 years, uh, never talked. Uh, my, his two sons, my uncles, uh, were constantly trying to win his approval. Uh, my mom uh, had self-destructive habits that just went throughout her life, and there was all sorts of deep things within her. Completely dissolved my own family. My parents were divorced, and my mom hasn't been a part of my life in over 25 years. And so I, I've seen firsthand how those things, and I don't think other people don't have responsibility in that, but I've seen how that just destroys community, destroys relationships. And now I have the uncomfortable admission to see how that same self-righteous judgment can be in me. Because I, I tend to have really high standards, and I tend to, to think about how things are supposed to be done, and what are the rules, and what are the, the way it's supposed to go? What are the standards? And church, if you could just get it together, <laughs> or in my own family. And then I could look at myself and go, I don't know that I've even kept the standards the way that I wish I had. And it just tears relationships apart. And so I think this is really dangerous to the community that God is trying to build within all of us. You know, I think uh, my sinful nature, I would have self-righteous judgment whether I was a Christian or not. I think becoming a Christian means that on one hand, I have the opportunity to overcome that. That's the, the, the glorious thing about it is there's, there's grace and there's, there's a way to overcome what's in, deep inside of my heart. On the other side, the really dangerous thing is now all of a sudden I got fuel because I can start to weaponize the Bible and go, not only do I have my standards, but guess what? I can say God said this and God said that, and it creates an atmosphere that's not real good. And God sees deep beyond that. Now, I want to think about uh, a couple different things that we could draw from Romans chapter 2. Four things. We'll go through this somewhat quickly, hopefully. Uh, but one, I would say, one thing we learn is we have a much deeper problem than we realize. 
for both the the self-consciously moral and the self-confident Jew, there's similarities and differences, but in both cases, the problem is much deeper than what meets the human eye. So, for instance, I'll just point out a few throughout this chapter. Uh, Paul says that wrath is being stored up in verse 5 because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart. In other words, there's an issue deep within the heart that's the problem. He further describes the problem as what what one is ultimately seeking in verse 7 and 8. Are we seeking self in our life or are we seeking glory, honor, and immortality? Uh, He also tells us in verse 16 that God will judge people's secrets. There's a lot of things that are, are secret that goes on within the heart. At least they're secret if we keep them secret. But God will judge those deep things within us. Those things will be brought to light. Uh, He also tells us that a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, but who is one inwardly. That's in verse 28 and 29. See, if we only see the external parts of our life, the outward parts, the actions as the problem, then we're missing the much deeper, much bigger problem. At some point, we got to think about our own heart, evaluate where we're really at, the things that other people don't actually see, because we could very easily be like spending our time polishing the brass on the Titanic. The brass looks really shiny, but the ship is going down. If we're only focused on the outward things. You know, the world tends to think that humans have an external problem. It's my circumstances, it's other people, and an inward solution. The way to change is look inwardly. God says we have an inward problem, sin, and the solution is outside of ourselves in God. And so the problem is much deeper. Secondly, God's judgment. Uh, As we think about God's judgment, repeatedly Paul refers to God's character in judgment. Verse 2, he tells us God's judgment is based on truth. Uh, as opposed to judgment that's merely human in verse 3, and therefore inadequate. Uh, We know that on the day of God's wrath in verse 5, it says that His righteous judgment will be revealed. So part of what will be revealed is that it's righteous judgment. Uh, Down in verse 16, this is interesting, he says, we know that the gospel that Paul declared included judgment of people's secrets. So gospel means good news, and yet in Paul's mind, he thought that this judgment was part of the message of good news. Judgment, nobody will think judgment is wrong or unfair or or unrighteous on, on that day, right? Nobody will criticize God, even though we struggle with the idea of judgment today. How do people tend to view God today? I think that in the end, No one will think God's judgment is unfair, but I think people don't like the idea of God's judgment. I can understand that, but God's reputation in the world is not tarnished by the fact that he judges. It's tarnished actually because God is patient. So God is actually willing because he says that his kindness and patience is intended to lead people to repentance but in the meantime that means that there's a whole lot of people that haven't repented and particularly in verse if i were to go down to verse 24 it's the unrepentant people that blaspheme god's name 
his reputation. So God is actually willing to let his reputation be tarnished because he's not concerned about his reputation. He's concerned about saving people and bringing people to repentance. None of us will be cringing in heaven thinking, wow, the party is great, but I feel a little bit uncomfortable comfortable about the things God has been up to lately. We'll rejoice in God, even in his righteous judgment. Third, the surface repentance. Uh, you'll notice I put repentance in quotes here uh, because it's really not repentance. When we attempt to justify ourselves and make excuses and minimize our sin and make allowances for our bad behavior and rationalize our wrongdoing, then we are effectively settling for a surface level repentance that really isn't repentance. It's more like behavior modification or moral adjustments. Now, I remember Steve Sandin, we were studying the Bible with people on campus at the University of Minnesota, and he would always say when talking about repentance, if you just want to make adjustments, then go see a chiropractor. But God is calling us to repentance. So self-justification effectively shields our hearts from the transforming work of the gospel. We start to do a public relations campaign so that other people think we're doing good while leaving the matters of the heart largely untouched. Do you see what a problem that is if we want transformation? Self-justification inevitably creates a double life because you're busy presenting a polished up version of yourself in front of others that is different from who you really are before God. And so it, it leads to one version of yourself at church, and there's another version of yourself at school, or at work, or at home. What a miserable way to live. What a miserable way to live, to constantly be afraid that others might find out who God already knows you to be. And the truth is, they likely will find out. Now, I've heard this before, it's a, lot more, it's a lot easier to act like a Christian than it is to react like one. Because you can script how you want to act, but how you react always flows from the heart. And if we're going to address those issues, we've got to think deep, more, far deeper than, than what self-justification will allow. Fourth, a deeper repentance. You know, when we stop making excuses and our mouths are silenced, then the stage is set for God to, to transform us, the transforming work of the gospel. We're finally ready to hear the good news as truly good news. You know, when my four-year-old sins, even if I saw it, we're at a relational stalemate until she acknowledges it. Because I can tell her, I saw what you did. But until she is willing to own up to it, we're at a relational stalemate. There, there, we can't be close because, not because I don't want to be close. It's because we're living by a facade rather than by what's truly there. You know, someone once said that reality is your friend and sometimes your friend is ugly. And I would just say this as we think about these four points. Getting open and honest and real about your inner heart sounds really terrifying before you do it. But after you do it, it'll probably be the most refreshing 
liberating, cathartic, and powerful part of repentance. This is what we have to get to, and this is why repentance is such a good thing. And I think next Sunday, we're going to get into Romans chapter 3, and I think we're going to be able to see what Jesus came to do about the deep things within our own heart. But as we wrap up, I wanted to read something from a book that I found, I stumbled across it probably 10 years ago, and maybe the Spirit jogged my memory from this passage, so uh, at least I'll believe that, but I wanted to read, it's kind of a longer section, so if you could stick with me, uh, it'll be kind of a great way to end and think about some of this stuff. He says, I sin, which you know all too well by now, but, but I rarely say it. Sure, I admit that I sin because we're all sinners, blah, 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 but it's more than that. My sin is tangible. It hurts people, people that I care about. I withhold good things from people. I blight the image of God. I'm not talking about the kind of hangnail sins we confess to each other these days. I'm trying to say that my sin even more than I suspect, is the kind of gaping wound that makes you nauseous to look at. Sometimes I find myself in the middle of lust or gossip or laziness, buying stuff to feel better or craving the approval of others, and I know it's wrong, wrong like vandalism and deception. Yet the urges that drive it, or at least the habits that perpetuate it, keep pushing. They push so obstinately that I feel I've passed the point of no return, as if I'm obligated to it. In that moment, I think it's just easier to stay the course, easier to satisfy the urge than to kill it. There is a certain kind of relief in giving up. At least it's over. It's over. I can think clearly now. I confess it to God. I don't always confess it. Sometimes I dismiss it as small, justify it, or lose it in the blur of the next activity. Sometimes I clean the kitchen or watch TV. Eventually, I forget about it. What's in the past is in the past. I'm finished with it. But it is not finished with me. When gratified, sinful desire subsides, but it always comes back in familiar and mutated forms, strengthened by precedent. My heart gets harder and more disposed to the sin, thus the sorrow of prevailing indulgence. It's perplexing. In some ways, I'm growing and maturing and becoming who I think God wants me to be. Simultaneously, sin is progressing and spreading in me like cancer. It is somehow subtle and ferocious, a homicidal lull. Every single singular act of sin is part of the scheme to harden me, to medicate the pain of cosmic adultery, to sing me quietly to sleep. I don't think enough about the real horror of what it means to sin, that I conceive with my sinful desires a lethal organism that is unleashed into the world around me, perpetuating pain and deception working to undermine the activity of God among us. I do not consider the long-term effect on my soul that I am becoming a slave to what I hate. David, a friend of his, posed a question on the blog along these lines. He asked, what if I knew that for every bowl of ice cream I enjoyed, I would lose 1% of my vision? If you don't love ice cream, then substitute something else, favorite food, watching sports, etc., David said his initial response would be to swear off ice cream completely because vision is way too important to throw away on a short-lived pleasure. But then he went on to say, I suspect after a while I would wonder if it were really true. Does ice cream really cause me to lose vision or did someone make that up to keep me from getting fat? Eventually I would try it out. I would eat some ice cream and then 
look at some words to see if they were blurry. I'm guessing I would see just fine. 1% wouldn't make that much of a difference. But just to be safe, I would only have ice cream once a month. After a year of ice cream that amounted to 12% loss in vision, I think I would notice a difference. In a blurry street sign, I would see some consequence of my indulgence. The eye doctor would change my prescription, and I would have to get new glasses. And then I would see clearly again. And in seeing clearly again, I wonder if I would be tempted to eat just a little ice cream, since the consequences appear manageable. In fact, eating just a little ice cream would still leave leave me many years before losing my eyesight completely. Stronger prescriptions, laser eye surgery, I'm adaptable. I think I could still make life work. Sometimes I wonder if little acts of sin smudge the window of my soul. I confess, ask for God's cleansing and all, but while I'm confident of a restored fellowship with God, I wonder if I've lost something I can't fully recover. So enjoy your ice cream this Wednesday. Let's pray as we think about communion in the Lord's Supper. And I want us to think deeper about our own hearts than we've ever thought. Let's get beyond the surface, beyond the external actions of our day-to-day life, but to think about our own heart and the sin within it, because that's what Jesus came to rescue us from. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, God, we come before you knowing that we're sinners. After looking at these first few chapters, our mouths of self-justification, our excuses, uh, our minimization of our own sin, uh, we know that it truly shuts up our mouths of self-justification. And God, we know that that's a good thing, Father. It's good to be honest before you. You know our hearts. You know our sin. You know everything about us. And Father, we know that everything is laid bare before you. We ask, Father, that we would not work to deceive ourselves. We would not look for loopholes in the system, so to speak, or make excuses in our own minds or thoughts. I pray that we would be honest before you because we know that we all need a Savior. We know that we can't save ourselves. We know that it's only because of the perfect lamb that you provided that our sins can be washed away. And our confidence before you is in that sacrifice and nothing else. Uh, Father, we ask that you would help us to, especially as we get into the next chapter of Romans, that you would sort of prime our heart over the next seven days to really hear the word preached, that, that it would sink deeply into our soul and that it truly would transform us. God, I pray that you would not only help us to be honest before you, but that we would be honest before one another, that we would welcome the prayers and the help and the encouragement and, and we would welcome your spirit into our life to transform us. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. As early as we are in the book of Romans, uh, it's easy to feel like it's hopeless and there's some good in that when considering where we're at, but we know that the book of Romans goes on, uh, that there's more to this book and we ask that you would Uh, really help us to grasp deeply the good news. Help us to be people uh, that are humble and not self-righteously judgmental, especially as people walk into our doors and our homes and so forth. We pray that 
that people would see in us uh, a message uh, that's worth surrendering their life to. And we ask that you would just transform this world, uh, this city, uh, and this area. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.